I'm your host, James Rutazzi. This is our 26th episode, and this week we are beginning a discussion of sin that I am certain will span at least a few episodes. Let's kick things off with a discussion I initiated on the topic. This conversation includes me attempting to describe a graphic representation of the principles involved in understanding God and sin so use your imagination as you listen. I plan on posting a video on the Believe and Follow YouTube channel, which right now has just one video, so bear with me on that. I was thinking of doing this week's podcast about sin. First, just the concept of sin, and secondly, just about the definition of the word. So if I pose the question this way and I said to you, what is sin? What would your answer be? Anything that is contrary to God. That's a good answer. So somebody who's not familiar with the Bible might answer the question differently. Sometimes people use the word sin in a general sense, right? Oh, it's a sin the way that guy dresses. (laughs) What are they just saying? They're saying, I don't like the way the guy dresses. I think it's useful for us to have as a specific an understanding of what sin is so that we can uh, better understand how to avoid it or see how we relate. Can you think of any verses that help us with a more specific Bible definition of sin or or any thoughts about verses that you have? This is the one that just pulled up on my when I opened my Bible here. Uh-huh. Okay, go ahead. Um, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does right. not submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But that whole looks like that whole chapter is very much about sin. Romans eight. So that is about sin for sure. It's helpful because it helps us to understand that there's a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. That's one of like. Paul's main themes. But it doesn't really give us a definition, does it? Well, what do you think? you think it does? Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Well, I mean, it gives us a, an understanding of what it is, maybe not a definition, per se. Right, yeah, exactly. Let's see, then, how about 1 John 3, 4? Yeah, 1 John 3:4 is usually the one that I go for. What does that say to us about sin? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Right. And so that word is transgression. And transgression means what? Crossed a border. Exactly. There are two 
concepts of sin that we see in the Bible. And one is this idea that it's transgression. There's a rule. If you disobey the rule, the rule sets a line. So imagine a big piece of paper, draw a line in it. This side of the line is you're obeying the rule, this side is disobeying the rule. So, for example, the beginning of Genesis, where God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, there's the line. Boom. If you don't eat from that tree, then you're still on the obedient side, the good side, the life and light side where God is. And then if, if you disobey that rule, then you've crossed over, you've transgressed, now you're on the other side of the border, you're disobedient, so you're a lawbreaker. And the Apostle Paul makes that point too. If you're looking at it like, I've got to keep all the laws, then if you break one, then you're a lawbreaker. Because most people do not see themselves that way. Most people see themselves as like, okay, well, I've broken some rules, but I'm not a bad person. Mm -hmm. I might speed, but I'm still a good driver, etc., etc., etc. But the Bible doesn't look at it that way, right? So you have statements like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've broken some sort of rule. And it doesn't matter if we view ourselves as being someone like in 1 John 3 who makes a habit of <coughs> sinning or someone who is just at one point, well, I may have committed a sin or two. Sin is sin. So you're designated a sinner pretty much if you've, if you've done anything because most because how are we going to know if we don't know what God wants? We're more likely to do something he doesn't want. Okay, so there's that one picture of just a single line, but you're just looking at a single rule. And sin isn't about necessarily, okay, I've got one rule from God and I'm going to obey it. God's instruction to us, even in the New Testament, has a bunch of rules. Most of us have crossed the line in some rule or another. There's another idea of sin, more in the definition of the Old Testament word than in the New Testament. And it's this idea of missing a mark. There's a passage in Judges chapter 20 <clears throat> verse 16 that's just talking about the nation of Israel gathering up to avenge the death of this woman. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. <laughs> Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The last word of that verse is not miss the, that word miss is the same as sin. So it's the idea, not miss the target. So there's this whole graphic thing that I want to create, which is shows this idea of God should be the, the center of our thinking, right? The center of our thinking should be God. In God is light and life. And so everything outside is darkness. Looking at your screen, you've got a dot in the middle that's... It's a black screen, got a dot in the middle that's God. So God is the life, so that's where you want to move toward. And if you move away from God, you're moving away from life and towards... Blackness, death. Blackness, death. Exactly, exactly. You get this idea of that also from a target. If we don't sin, we're hitting the target, the center, which is God. So you have the picture in your head, right? So how do you reconcile this idea of sin transgressing, crossing a line with God being the bullseye on the target. How do you combine those two? I'm not sure. <laughs> so you've got one picture where you understand God is like the dot in the center. 
So imagine exactly the opposite of this, whereas everything's black and God is white, right? Let's say God makes a rule, an instruction, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you don't do that, then you stay on this side, you're on the God side of the thing, right? Imagine the dot's not there for a second. I draw the line, this side of the line is white, this side of the line is black. So there's that one rule. So let's say now then God gives you a second rule. A second line crosses the page. This side of this line is white, this side of this line is black. Notice, now we've got a smaller area that's white, because now we have two rules. And so let's say, then there's a third rule and a fourth rule, whatever, okay. The aggregate of all these rules, if you're obedient to all these rules, now you're focused on God. And this also brings into the principle we have in the Bible, don't add to or take away from. Because if we take away one of these, now we see a bunch of things that are okay, but they're really not because we didn't see the rule. But don't add to, like what if James wants to add a rule? I'm not God, so I'm not creating my rules in such a way that focus me on God. If I had a rule like this, this is a James rule, this side is good and that side is bad, your obedience to the instruction is no longer bringing you closer to God. Mm -hmm. It's just pointless. So that's the idea of don't add to. Don't add to these and don't take away from. So if someone says, well, I don't see the harm in us adding all this, it might not be harmful. Someone might say, well, you know, maybe we should add this rule about washing hands. I don't see any harm in washing hands. Washing hands is not a bad thing. Washing hands is a good thing. So let's add this rule of washing hands. But if the rule doesn't come from God, if it comes from my idea, well, I don't see any harm in this, then this whole thing breaks down and focuses it on God. What do you think of that whole graphical representation? Do you think that will make sense if I do that? I like it. Um. The other thing also, if you go back to the dot idea, so you've got the dot on the center of the... that is described by all the rules that God has laid down. Everything at the end of this, all these lines being added in, everything, everything outside will be darkness except for the spot where God is. But also, the idea that God is one. <coughs> Father, Son, and Spirit are all right there. Like, Son isn't here and spirit isn't here, they're one, they're all right on that spot, which means what? They're, their mind and judgment are in complete agreement. Where do I want to be? Can I be out there? No. Can I be, you know, wherever? No, I, I need to focus on it. That's why I need to be obedient to all these instructions, because of being obedient to all these instructions puts me there. Helpful? You think that helps to clarify the idea of sin? Like what is and what isn't sin? I think more so for people who haven't thought about it, I guess. But, I mean, yeah. Like, so not that it's just an arbitrary thing, but it's, you know, there's a reason for it. Right, God's rules focuses you in on that spot. <clears throat> but here's another thing that I even get from people who've thought about it, though, because there are lots of people who really don't appreciate this idea of this from God or from man question, not adding things that came from man. And they want to add instructions in, even though they wouldn't call it that. I don't know if, if you've ever heard the Bible taught this way. This goes back to your question from before. 
how do we apply the things in the Bible to our lives? Well, you can see commands, you can see examples, and you can see necessary inferences. Have you ever heard someone organize the thinking that way? They don't do it so much anymore, which I'm glad, because this idea of necessary inferences is very tricky. Mm -hmm. It's necessary to one person. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the <clears throat> people and the people who want to teach prohibition of alcohol say that's obviously a necessary inference. You know, how, how many verses are there that are pro-alcohol? It really isn't. It isn't a necessary inference, but people will quote you verse after verse. You know, there's plenty of Old Testament verses about do not drink strong drink and the evils of getting intoxicated and etc., etc., etc. So therefore, we should tell people you should never drink alcohol. That, therefore, is not a necessary inference. Although, try to convince the people that have been taught that that's a necessary inference that it's not. Because they will be able to quote you book, chapter, and verse ad nauseum of verses that support <clears throat> unnecessary conclusion. So that's why I don't say necessary inferences. I just say you've got direct command, but we also have the examples. And we have a direct command that justifies us following the examples that we see in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says, follow my examples, I follow the example of Christ. Christ told the apostles that you're going to be my witnesses. We can follow the example of what the apostles did. So we have commands and we have examples. You agree with that idea? So. Yeah. yeah. So we can say something's a sin if it doesn't agree, clearly doesn't agree with a direct command, like don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You eat from it, you've sinned. Mm -hmm. You can also look at the example of what the apostles did and if you neglect to do it, then that for you is sin also. So they would gather together on the first day of the week to worship. If you neglect doing that, even though we do have a command, if we didn't have Hebrews 10.25, which says, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. If we didn't have that, if we didn't follow the example, then we would be sinning. There's a verse that says, <clears throat> Are you saying if we didn't get together or if we didn't get together on the first day of the week? That's a good question because if you look at Hebrews 10.25, it doesn't necessarily say the first day of the week. Mm -hmm. This is where the picture of a bunch of instructions helps you focus on what you're thinking <clears throat> because Hebrews 10.25 says you do not neglect the assembling together. It doesn't necessarily mean the first day of the week. But then we have other instructions like they did gather together on the first day of the week to do various things. But we also have the instruction to be united in the same mind and judgment. So we have to come to agreement as to what we should be doing on the first day of the week, what our little group does on the first day of the week. Carl, you were going to say something? To, I don't, to me at least, I don't see it specifically saying that we have to get together. Yes, that's an example. So, I mean, if, we, if it's possibility, then we should do it. But I don't think, like, you know, for instance, if, if our culture had been a little bit different and the first day of the week just happened to, you know, become a work day and most people just couldn't get together, then to me, we... I, don't think that getting together on a Monday would be a sin. 
Okay. Let's because an example isn't a command. Yes, it's it's useful. I think. I think it's you know if if we have a question of what did they do, so we can try to model ourselves after them. That's useful. I think you know, and we should try to. But I don't think it's the same thing. Let's examine that idea for a minute. So you're saying that an example is not a command. But when the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's that qualifier, as I follow the example of Christ. So he's not saying, follow my example in everything. So if I like to wear purple neckties, everybody's got to wear purple neckties. No, because that's got nothing to do with following the example of Christ. He's, he's shown, you know, specifically in the marriage thing, that he, for himself, he's put, I don't, I don't want to say extra things onto on him, himself. But, but he, he can do without marriage, you know. So, right. so to him, that's, that's something he's willing to give up for God. That doesn't, I don't think... Right, but that's not necessarily following the example of Christ, because he's very specific to say, this is a decision that I've made for myself. Mm -hmm. but, so, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, I just... I don't think that... That one instance, you know, of just saying they got together on the first day of the week, maybe that was just convenient for all of them. Well, but it's not just one instance. It's the entirety of the New Testament... What day of the week was called out as a special day of gathering together, and what other days of the week were called out of as a special day of gathering together? Let's put that aside for a moment. Let me give you a hypothetical first, and then we'll move on to the other thing. Because the way you put it has a bunch of elements. Let's say we as a group gathered together on the first day of the week. And you got a job that you were not available at all on the first day of the week to get together. And somebody in the group said to you, well, you can't get the day off or you can't get a, a, a long lunch on the first day of the week or whatever to be able to gather with the people. And you say, no, no, it's completely impossible, right? Because uh, i got to go all the way, more than 24 hours away to do my job, let's say. So then someone might say to you, well, which is more important, your job or pleasing God? Okay, so let's say I put the question that way. Just look at that question by itself, and not necessarily the conclusion of, well, I should quit my job so I can worship, but just which is more important, your job or pleasing God? Pleasing God. Okay. If I had a job where, let's say, I was a collector for the mafia, and, uh, you know, these, these people are behind on their loans, so... I'm going to break your legs. I might say to you, well, that maybe you need to get a different job because I don't think your job is pleasing to God. You know, you would have to agree. You would have to agree on a couple of levels. <clears throat> Number one, our little local group, but also in the church universal, should be in agreement in the same mind and judgment. So if our little group says, oh, well, Jeremy's job, he can't get together on Sunday to worship, <clears throat> then we're going to have the Lord's Supper on Monday. If we all three of us agreed, let's say, our little group agreed, 
then we'd say, okay, well, we've got agreement here. We're united in the same mind and judgment because we're doing it on <coughs> Monday. But then, what does that do with the unity with us and the rest of the church? The guys that meet down the street, the guys that meet... You see? There's a problem there. We're supposed to be united in the same mind and judgment. Really? I don't think that's a problem to me. You don't think that's don't a problem? I don't see that as a problem. Because, I mean, you're still doing what God says. You're still meeting with people. You're still, you know, getting together to worship Him. I don't think that God, you know, requires a specific day. I don't see that. Right. Just, just because the early Christians did it on that day, if, if he had wanted it specifically, he would have said, set aside this day, like he, like he did for the early Jews, you know? He said, keep the Sabbath day holy. But he says, it seems in the New Testament, he just says, you know, like you said earlier, get together with other Christians. And, okay. it, and it turned out, you know, Christian history, I guess, turned out to... Just coincidentally. It's just... I'm not going to say coincidentally, but, you know, it, it has turned out to be that way. But... Here's the thing, and I, I know I'm being rude for stopping you, but oh, we look at the evidence of what days of the week were given special consideration in the New Testament. And the only day of the week that was given any kind of special consideration is the first day of the week. And we see that they did certain things on the first day of the week. It's clear. And this is the idea of being consistent in our logic in all things. It doesn't have to be like a contract where it says, this is what you must do. If you think you want to do this, don't do that. If you think you want to do this, don't do that. It's like, baptism is immersion. Once we establish that baptism is immersion, we don't need verses that, that say, it's not sprinkling. It's not whatever else you might think of, right? It's not dipping your pinky in the water or anything like that. It's immersion. Once we establish that one point, it excludes all others. That's a, that's a general principle of applying scripture to our lives. Is that not correct? For baptism? Yes. Well, I mean, I mean I, for I generally reasoning things. Once we establish something, then that excludes other possibilities because we've established that thing. So, for example, for baptism, you're right. For baptism, it's correct. We have instruction about it and we have examples about how they baptized. Do you have another example of something like this? Something not, that's an example... That's, that's not, not baptism. Well, well I mean, that's not... I was also going to say that's not... Because the command... The baptism is a command, you know, so... Right, to baptize, one. but the command says to baptize. Mm -hmm. So then you figure out, well, what, what do they mean by that word baptism? Okay, that's... that's weird. So something that's an example that's never commanded. The first day of the week. Something similar to the first day of the week. Like, you know, just, just if I can have another example that I agree on, then maybe I would have another reference point to, to tie it to. See, I was going to say appointing elders, and I was going to, in using in my argument of appointing elders, because if you understand from Scripture that the method of governing the local church was to have a group of elders, then that excludes every other mode of government. See, I could, I, could, I could agree with that, but that seems much more like a command. Than... It does. I agree with you. It does seem much more like a command. 
that you're going to be appointing elders in every church. Like for instance, here's just just one that kind of I don't want to say disproves it all, but but it says something about another day of the week in the New Testament, uh, Acts two forty six. And day by day, attending the temple together. Right. So, I mean, when we gather together on the first day of the week, that shouldn't be the only day we gather together. But it shows that there are certain things that they did that they only did on the first day of the week. So, we would follow their example. Yeah, but you understand what's going on in Acts chapter 2, right? Because some people use that and say, well, obviously they had the Lord's Supper every day of the week. No, that's not what that verse is saying. In order to follow the various instructions that we need to follow as far as being involved in each other's lives and keeping each other from sin and such, we would perhaps gather together more than just on the first day of the week. Our lives would ideally be more intertwined. So no one's indicating, even though that's what a lot of church behavior kind of like devolves into, well they only get together for their hour on the first day of the week and they're considered <clears throat> all these people part of the church. Is more to it than that. I do agree with you. It's not, it's not like a rule that you have to be there on the first day of the week. In other words, if something happens and I'm not available because I, I had something else that was important that I had to do on a particular first day of the week, then that's fine. But you have to set up your life in such a way that you're able to obey these instructions. For example, some people, if they're looking for a place to move to, won't move to a place where there's no already established church because they want to gather together with the Lord's people. Some, and I don't feel that firmly about that because, you know, if you're <coughs> moving somewhere, you can be the one that starts a church. Okay. They're considering arranging their lives so that they're able to be following God's instruction and be pleasing to God. So if I was looking for a job and the job said you absolutely had to be there on Sunday, <clears throat> I wouldn't take that job. Mm -hmm. That's how I would do it and how I would say to somebody if they took a job that made it impossible for them to worship on the first day of the week, would you accept that if I'm correct about the first day of the week being a special day that's called out? If that were true, and you were talking to somebody who was, oh, I have to take this job that it'll be impossible for me to gather together to worship on the first day of the week. Completely impossible. There's just no way to do it. What would you say to that person? Would you say, maybe you shouldn't take that job. Maybe you should take a job where they let you have at least a little bit of time on the first day of the week to gather together to worship. If, if it was a specific commandment, you know, in the Bible, then yes. Like, you know, it'd be the same as... You know, oh, your job requires you to steal. It's, right, it's, then right, right, right. It says right there, you know, you shouldn't steal. Or, yeah, things like, if it's specifically against what the Bible says somewhere, that we're, you know, obviously sure that it applies to us today also, then yes, then you should... But you have a general rule that examples are not as binding as direct commands. That's your general rule. I think logically, yes, you should think that way. Because... 
mean... Logically, you should think that way, except for the fact that you like, do should, have. Should a... we all be tent makers like Paul? Like he no, because that was. But once again, look at the specific wording of the command that I would use. If you needed to have a command to authorize following the Apostle <coughs> Paul's example, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Mm -hmm. So, being a tent maker is not him following the example of Christ. No, we right? Don't, we don't know what Jesus was. He, Jesus might, be, was... he might have been a tent maker. <laughs> Unlikely, he would most likely have been a carpenter if he yeah. was a, if he was anything. Yeah. But he may but, have really but done nothing. But what I'm saying is, there's nothing. But, but let's stop on that for a minute. Okay. Is there anything that supports the possibility that Jesus was a tent maker in all of Scripture? No. No. But, no. No. Not any more than if he was any other professional. Yes, but what I'm saying is, if I'm looking to follow the command, let's just create a logical structure here. The Apostle Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's an instruction. That's a command, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, we can see the example of what the Apostle Paul did, and that has now given the example of what Paul and the, the other Apostles did also. That rises to command status because of that command. Mm -hmm. So, he says, follow my example, follow, follow, follow the example of Christ. Now remember, we walk by what? Faith and not by sight. And faith comes what? By hearing, hearing the word of God, right? So, we're walking by faith if we're following what the Bible tells us. So, if somebody says, okay, so Paul was a tent maker, so we should be tent makers. And I say, no, 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 no. Paul was a tent maker, but he was a tent maker because he's following the example of Christ. He was a tent maker because that was his profession. Just like Peter was a fisherman. And he wasn't a fisherman because he was following Christ. He was actually a fisherman before we ever met Christ. Paul was a tent maker before he even met Christ. Let's look at all of the passages in Scripture that lead us to the conclusion that Jesus was a tent maker. I've just stated them all. <laughs> right? There are none, right? There are none. You've read the whole New Testament. You don't remember any verses that indicate that Jesus could have been a tent maker or was a tent maker? Okay, so being a tent maker is something that Paul did, but it was outside of him following the example of Christ. Just like him <clears throat> deciding to be single was outside of him following the example of Christ. So those things are outside. So we don't have to be tent makers, and we don't have to be single. We're free to get married, and we're free to find some other way of earning a living. Correct? Think so. From Scripture, and that's binding. If someone said to me, well, all of us in our church are tent makers because <laughs> we're the church of the tent maker. Okay? Well, then, then I say, no, 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 because not only are you going beyond what the text says, but you're also disobeying the instruction to be united in the same mind and judgment. So you see how that logic holds. So there's no command that says, now don't make your church the church of the tent makers. But if we're going to follow the instruction and not add to it or take away from it, of following the example of the Apostle Paul as he follows the example of Christ, we can't bind on anybody to be a tent maker. How about this? Gosh. Should we all be some version of a nomad 
somebody who doesn't have their own home, you know, who travels the world, always spreading the gospel. Because that that does seem to be what Jesus and Paul and most of the earliest disciples even did, or apostles. Well, were there examples of disciples who had homes and stayed in their homes? Especially in the later parts. Because in the early part, you're right, they were all kind of like, come to Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday. And so there were all these people that didn't really live there. And all of a sudden they've converted to Christianity and they want to stay with the church in Jerusalem. But they live way out and whatever. There is an application of this idea that we're all just pilgrims, that we're all just nomads, and we don't be too attached to the same place. But were there any people who had houses and they kept their houses in the New Testament? Yes, there were, because there were examples about churches that met in the house of so-and-so. Mm -hmm. So even though this idea that Abraham was a nomad and... In Hebrews chapter 11 it says he lived in tents and he never built himself a house and he was looking forward to this kingdom. I mean, that's how we should be too. We should be looking forward to that kingdom. And our house, if we do build a house, our house here on earth, that should not take precedence over our eternal dwelling. Absolutely true. But do we have to be nomads? No. We can settle in a certain town because we see examples of disciples that lived in a certain town and stayed there and had houses, they had the church meeting at their home. So that's a reasonable thought, and someone might think that, and someone might even bring that up, well, we should all just be nomads because we shouldn't be attached to a house. But, I mean, just, I'll just bring that up, you know. As, no, that's a good as one. Should we follow that people. example? Because that is an example that both Paul and Jesus were, no, you know, foxes of holes but I have no place to yeah, rest my head. He, he wasn't happy about that. No, it was no sort place. of a lament. Saying, and you know something? If it's necessary for us to go someplace else to preach the gospel, and we say, well, I can't. I have a house here. Well, then what's more important, preaching the gospel or having a house? Well, preaching the gospel. But we still have examples of people who stayed in their hometown and kept their houses. In order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you now have to become a nomad. We can see that that's not a requirement. Even though, if you for yourself want to do that, just like the Apostle Paul for himself wanted to remain single, Peter didn't think that was necessary. So Paul for himself decided to remain single, but that's not a binding thing on anybody else. Paul decided to travel around <laughs> until he got arrested. Paul decided to be a roaming evangelist. But it doesn't mean that all of us have to be roaming evangelists. It looks like a bunch of the Apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Peter stayed in Jerusalem, and then, but then moved to Rome. He didn't have missionary journeys like Paul. So Peter was more or less a sedentary guy. So we have examples of both. So I, I would say if someone wanted to say, that's a requirement that you have to be a nomad, I would say, no. But if you feel for yourself like you want to be a nomad, there's nothing that says, thou shalt not be a nomad. But that's a good example. That's one of those examples where somebody comes up with an idea. Oh, well, look, Paul was like, he was like a nomad. Jesus was like a nomad. Maybe we have to do that. Then you have to compare that inference to the entire rest of the Bible and see if we need to require that of all the believers to be nomads. Make sense? But that's a good example. But you see how we're applying the same method of reasoning, and I'm not looking for a command that says thou shalt not be a nomad, and I'm not looking for a command that says thou shalt be a nomad, 
But I am looking exclusively at the examples of the apostles. Now, if every single believer that we see mentioned in the New Testament became a nomad, and then we also see the historical evidence of, well, they didn't build church buildings or anything like that because they were always nomads. They were like, their whole group would move from place to place. If the historical record indicated that, then I would have to start considering whether that argument was true. But we don't see that. And so, cute idea, but not true. But you see how we took it seriously and applied that uh, reasoning to it. Purely using examples and not commands. You have to consider the unity question when you come up with any idea. So you say that the first day of the week is no more special than any other day of the week. We can even see that there are verses that may lead us to that also. I wouldn't say necessarily no more special, but I don't think it's a necessity. Okay. So, because like, I agree, you do have two instances of saying you know, they got together on the first day of the week, but I don't see anywhere saying they had to get, you know, telling us or telling them, telling anybody that you have to get together on the first day of the week. But then the question just becomes, if we're having our little group and we're saying, okay, well, we could have the Lord's Supper any day of the week we want. What day of the week are we going to have the Lord's Supper on? And we can give examples that indicate that, well, Scripture seems to be indicating that we should have it on the first day of the week. Plus, we have the examples of the Apostle Paul on the first day of the week. We have the historical record that they would gather together on the first day of the week to have the Lord's Supper. So, what day are we going to do? Well, Sundays are not so good for me. Tuesdays are much better. <laughs> Why don't we do it on Tuesday? It really is not a very strong command. Then we have to say, okay then, first of all, let's look at the unity question. How many groups of people that call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ say that we should have the Lord's Supper on Tuesday? We do have to think about the unity question. Even if we could find nothing else, and we found none of the other examples compelling, we don't find the example of what it says in Acts 20 and 7 particularly compelling. I don't find it particularly compelling by itself. What is going to be helpful to unity or what's going to hurt unity? Helpful to unity is to say, well, let's figure out which day is most likely to be. Let's look at the history of the church and let's <clears throat> draw a conclusion from that. And then that's what we'll do because that will promote unity, and even though oh, there's a possibility God doesn't feel very strongly about this because he didn't put a command in there, and let's do Tuesday, then we're kind of like, is that a best practice? Is that the safest bet? Now, I do agree that as time goes on, these things become codified, and they shouldn't be codified. They should be, we meet on Monday because we want to gather together with the other believers. I mean, on Monday, meet on Sunday. <laughs> I meant Sunday. We meet on Sunday because that's a best practice we see from the Bible. And we want to gather together with the believers. But not because it's the rule that you have to meet on Sunday. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah. So you're saying, not that it, I mean, well, you just said, not that it's rule, but because 
that's the example we're given. So. Yeah, not because it's the rule or it's a command. Look, we're supposed to love one another, but we're supposed to love loving one another. So we have the command to love one another, and that's a command. But I don't, well, okay, I gotta love Jeremy. It's the rule. You see, our thinking shouldn't be, well, I'm doing it because it's the rule. I'm doing it because I really desire to do what God wants me to do. So, what God really wants me to do is to have a close connection with the other believers in my little group. And what God really wants me to do is to have unity, to be perfectly, not perfectly, I always stick perfectly in there, but to be united in the same mind and judgment with all the other believers. Now, I can't control what the people in Piscataway do, but what can I control? I can control what I do. So I'm not going to take a radical view, even though it might be fun, and say, well, it's not so important what day we get together, and I know all the other churches, it's the first day of the week, but I'm going to do it on Tuesday. Even if we didn't have reasonable conclusion from the scriptures, but we saw the example down through history of all the other churches, that becomes an element of keeping unity, right? That, that last sentence, definitely, I might find... Well, you have to problem. think about that. If, like, okay, there are some churches that practice sprinkling as baptism. So I say, okay, wait a second, which is it? Sprinkling, it's immersion. There are a lot of churches that teach immersion. And we also see the historic record as immersion. So we get the understanding from Scripture. We see the example down but, through history. But if the split happened, you know... 30 years after Jesus, and there were two branches, one with immersion and one with sprinkling. That's right. You would have to consider that split, and why did that split happen so early? But it, of course, didn't. But still, today we have a bunch of people who say, we can have sprinkling. So what's the unity argument there? Well, the unity argument has to hinge on, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I have to have unity with the people who are doing this by faith. You can't sprinkle by faith. But something by faith, even if there's scant evidence, it's still by faith. A key question this discussion raises is, what does it mean to walk by faith? We covered this concept in previous podcasts. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. God's word is the source and chief instrument of our faith. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us, And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This seeking of God certainly includes obeying his instructions. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's John chapter 14, verse 15. Is keeping his commandments merely obeying a list of rules, or does it go deeper than that? We need to be clear about what pleases God in order to be clear about what sin is. So we need to examine God's word in order to understand what pleases him. Now Jeremy raises an interesting issue with the principle he mentioned, an example is not a command. Is the concept that if God considered something important, he would state it as a direct command a valid one? 
Or is it true that God also expects us to carefully examine his word and gain understanding by the examples presented to us, both positive and negative? Notice the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 15 verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Much of scripture is stories that are given to us as examples. Very little of it is a list of direct commands. What is the proper method of handling all these various stories we see in both the Old and the New Testament? So in next week's podcast, we will explore further Jeremy's statement that an example is not a command in order to better understand what sin is and the proper method for applying scripture to our lives. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or even if you have any helpful suggestions, please feel free to email me at james at believeandfollow.org. That's all for now. Goodbye and God bless. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine.